Welcome to our podcast, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, Laced with Morality, where all authors and experts are invited to share, learn, and together make this a better world where light pierces through the darkness with the spoken and written word. Well, I am excited about our guest today. You'll find that he's a really unique person. And um, we met through Mickey Mickelson at Creative Edge, and his name is Michael Hingson. And um, he is a number one New York Times bestselling author, a technologist and motivational speaker. He's bl- He was blind since birth and survived the 9-11 terrorist attacks with the help of his guide dog, Roselle. And he and I were talking behind the scenes about 9-11. I was explaining to him uh, the fear I had when I was all the way in Arizona and the second plane hit and just being worried about my loved ones, people who I knew worked there. And um, I, I'm sure he'll tell us more about that experience. But um, this story of teamwork and his indomitable will to live and thrive is a subject of his best-selling book, Thunderdog, and the major motion picture that came out in 2013. Um, Michael Hingston and his guide dog, Roselle, saved out, well, dozens of lives by guiding him and his co-workers down 78 floors and out of Tower One just before it collapsed on 9-11. In Thunderdog, Michael leads us through his moment-by-moment account from inside the tower. The book is also an inspiring look at Michael's accomplishments in life. Um, Sadly, Roselle passed away in July of 2011, but after won the American Humane Association Hero Dog Award for 2012 in this star-studded gala in Beverly Hills, televised in a special feature presentation on the Hallmark Channel. Despite being blind all his life, Michael has a master's degree in physics from the University of California, Irvine, and is an accomplished technologist. He has worked with inventor futurist Ray Kurzweil for more than 30 years and was instrumental in the development of the first reading machine for the blind. Today, the Kurzweil brand is is one of the preeminent preeminent work name in educational software and technology for students with disabilities, for which Michael is a national sales manager, improving the lives of children, students, and adults with physical and learning disabilities through assistive technologies. Michael has a deep commitment to education and is an ambassador for the National Braille Literacy Campaign and also serves as an ambassador for the American Humane Association's Hero Dog Awards. Um, he's, in, he's also involved in public speaking and the Innovative Speakers Network named him as one of America's top 10 educational speakers. He is a member of NACA and a member of the National Speakers Association. In countless TV and radio appearances, newspaper features, and magazine articles, Michael does much more than recount his 9-11 story. He continuously explores a broader lessons of his life and experiences as a blind person in today's world and shares these lessons to educate, inspire, and empower audiences worldwide. Michael has appeared on Larry King five times and other major national broadcasts such as the Today Show, Fox and Friends, 
The 700 Club, Joy Bahar, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and the Hallmark Channel. I'm really blessed and honored to have Michael here um, on the podcast. And um, I really wanted to take the time to go over his extensive bio because it is an amazing, it is a major accomplishment um, for him to write, not just write Thunderdog and it become a motion picture, but he's also the novelist of two other books that he's going to tell us about. So Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. So, so please um, tell us about your other two books because you have, you have one in the works and one that, that has already come out after Thunderdog. Right. So the second book I wrote was called Running with Roselle. It was really intended for children. It's a story of me growing up as a, a blind youth and then growing into adulthood. And it was also the story of Roselle growing up and how we met and our life together. So that was published in late 2013, early 14. We self-published that one. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what is really funny is more adults buy it than children. That's okay. <laughs> so so it's out there. And then we're writing a new one called, um, I think we've settled on a title on, of Live Like a Guide Dog. And it's about, well, about fear. Um, one of the things that I've learned during the pandemic is that I talked a lot about not being afraid on September 11th and talked about how in reality <clears throat> I was able to escape and why and the things that I learned that helped me to be able to escape. But I realized that all the time since September 11th and talking about not being afraid, I've not really discussed how one can learn to control fear. Um, mm -hmm. Because people say our natural reaction when something unexpected happens is we have fear reactions. Well, there's yeah. truth to that. We have biological and emotional reactions. And unfortunately, all too often, we're just taught to feel afraid. What we're not taught to do is to control that fear and mm -hmm. use it as a powerful tool in our lives. And so mm -hmm. our new book, Live Like a Guide Dog, which traces my life again, but through the lens of eight guide dogs that I've had since 1964, we talk about fear, how to learn to not only live with it, especially in unexpected times, but how to control it and use it as a force to help you move forward. Right. Yeah. Can you... So can you tell, okay, because I know I'm interested, everybody else has to be interested. How do you, how do you write a book as a blind person? What kind of assistive technology do you use? Well, I write a book the same way you write a book, right? Um, so some <laughs> people do use pen and paper still, but most of us use word processing technology. So I use mm -hmm. the same kinds of tools that you use. I mm -hmm. use Windows machines and, and have a subscription to Microsoft Office. So I work with uh, Microsoft Word uh, to do most of the work mm -hmm. and do it just like anyone else would do. I mm -hmm. do have other technology. I use a piece of software called a screen reader that verbalizes the text that comes across the screen. But look, the real issue is something different than that. The real yeah. issue is that we don't all use necessarily the same technology. We don't all necessarily do things exactly the same way. But the issue is that we all use the tools that we know how to use best to accomplish a task. Right. And it doesn't matter whether a person is blind or sighted or a quadriplegic who uses a puff and sip stick to 
uh, simulate a keyboard because they're not able to use a mouse or whatever. The technology isn't the issue. Um, and, and people all too often think it's so amazing that a blind person can do these things. It's no more yeah. amazing for me to do it than it is for you. Yeah. Um, what most people don't realize is they have disabilities too. You have mm -hmm. a disability, although your disability is covered up by technology. Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb in 1878 as a reasonable accommodation to help you as a light dependent person be able to see in the dark. Right. And so now we have so much on-demand lighting available that most all the time your disability of light dependence is covered up, but it's still there. Wow. Um, and I could give examples of that. But the reality is that it isn't so much what I use for technology and what you use for technology. We all use different kinds of technologies based on our individual gifts to accomplish the tasks that we need to perform. Hmm. That's such a great outlook. I, I hadn't really thought of things like that because usually, uh, and I'm coming from the background as an educator. I, I, um, I was a teacher for many years, a principal for longer than that. And uh, the last school I was at was a hub for special needs. And so we we're trained to think of children who aren't sighted, who are who have hearing impairments and, and the list goes on. There's there. They're an endless amount of what they would entitle disabilities. And we look at that as a disadvantage and we come and we think of all of the things we can help them to be more like us not thinking in a way where we all have shortcomings and we all, and, and even thinking that depending on light and vision could be viewed as a disadvantage or a disability. Um, that is such an incredible way to view things. I, I almost wish I was still in the principalship. I could, <laughs> I could introduce that, that thinking. Um, but, but I love that you think that way. And perhaps, um, more of us would would do better to see the world in a different light if we did think that way that some of our some of our disabilities are just covered up by the by the technologies and the advantages that we have around us and for some of us the technology is just starting to catch up right so the reality is that um, one of the things I do now is I work for a company called Accessibe A C C E S S I B E and Accessibe is a company that's based in Israel that makes products to help make internet websites more accessible and inclusive for a variety of different kinds of disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and so things like Accessibe, um, the screen reader software that I use, other kinds of technologies, we're starting to see movement toward the technology to make the world more inclusive for me catch up. But we have a long way to go. And we still have so many challenges. A lot of people don't want to make their websites accessible. Oh, it'll cost too much to to hire someone to do the accessibility part. Well, not necessarily. That's what accessibility is all about. But the the reality is that what um, what we need to recognize is that inclusion is really part of the cost of doing business. If you don't make your website inclusive, if you do other things that leave out persons with disabilities, you, according to the CDC, are leaving out up to 25% of all potential business that you could get. Wow. Do you really want to do that? No. Um, having, having coffee machines in your offices, having lights so that people can see how to walk down the corridor, 
to go from one place to another. Those are all reasonable accommodations, and you wouldn't even think about them. They're part of the cost of doing business. Yet yeah. it can be a problem when a blind person wants a job and um, they say, well, I, you know, we need to have this software. Oh, I can't afford extra money for that. Yes, you can. It's part of the cost of doing business. Mm. And we need to get to the point where we have an inclusive mindset that says all people are welcome and all right. people have the same right to live in the world. Wow. That's incredible. Um, I, and I appreciate it more and more in, in, in looking even at my parents, my, my um, parents ended up becoming wheelchair bound by the, toward the end of their, their lives. Um, and they, those are because of significant illnesses. My father um, had um, an issue with his back and it, and some kind of, they couldn't put their finger on this disease, it, but it more, it acted like MS. And later on, mm -hmm. he had a brain tumor, which, which ended up taking his life. But um, you, I began to see the world in a different place. Like if we had to go somewhere, I'm thinking about um, the parking, hoping they have enough parking, hoping that um, there's a, there, it's wheelchair accessible, uh, you, you know, those kinds of things. And then later, later on with my mom, just even going grocery shopping with her and just thinking, just uh, my husband and I purchasing um, these claws so that if someone's not around to help her get something off of a top shelf that she can go, she can get, have this device and get it from, from the top shelf. Um, it, she, she needed um, even a device to help her put on socks. It's just, it, it, it's just endless. And it does open your eyes to, wow, how can, how are we adapting our places of business, the places where we do life to accommodate everyone. It's a very interesting approach. Well, and, and all too often we don't, and it's not malicious. Mm -mm. It's mostly, we don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Although some people would still say, well, it's too expensive to do some of these things. Well, and, and my position is it's not. Yeah. It is part of what one needs to do. But the fact is that um, you, you need accommodations to do things all the time, um, just like I do. Um, if, if you're a short person, if you're like five feet, you're not going to reach up to a very high shelf as opposed to a person who's six five or six six. It doesn't get viewed as a disability. You get a stepladder or something and you go up and get what you need to get. Nevertheless, you're using different gifts than other people have. Right. And it's no different for me. It's all about right. using the gifts that we have and recognizing that all of those gifts are all part of the same world that it's just that some people use some gifts and some people use other gifts. Some people use some technologies. Other people use different technologies, but it's all the same thing. We're mm -hmm. all in the same world and we need to recognize that it's okay that there are these other things that people have to use. It doesn't make them less than we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in terms of the author community, um, are you, do you happen to be friends with other authors and, and have they in any way um, helped you to become a better writer? Oh, sure. Um, in several ways. So the person who collaborated with me on Thunderdog, Susie Flory, and then the person who collaborated with me on, 
um, writing, running with Roselle because she was more of a children's book writer, Jeanette Hanscom. Hanscom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, on our new book, Live Like a Guide Dog, um, Susie introduced me to someone who could help. And I love collaborating. Yeah. So uh, Carrie Wyatt Kent is helping with that, but also interacting with the publishers and the, and the people at Thomas Nelson for Thunderdog. And now at Tyndale Publishing with Live Like a Guide Dog, we published, we self-published Running with Roselle. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten to meet a few authors through the years. And, and in fact, I started writing Thunderdog in 2002, even though it was like nine years later before it came out. But I started doing it because I met a gentleman named George Berger, who was the publisher for the AKC Gazette, the American Kennel Club Gazette, their magazine. Mm-hmm. And he said, you should write a book. And, and he provided a lot of good advice. So mm-hmm. um, I love having the opportunity to meet other people who have written and who can advise and growing up and going to high school and college and taking English courses and meeting people along the way there, that also helped. Yeah. So, so for you, what, what made you go from traditional to self-publishing then back to traditional? The, the fact is we couldn't find anyone who was interested in helping us publish Running with Roselle. Okay. Um, and publishers don't take all books. So we just decided to go ahead and bite the bullet and publish it <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. And it's worked out pretty well. Okay. But I think there's there is a lot of value to getting books published in the traditional way. I suppose one could say you might not make as much money uh, yeah. because the publishers take some. But there are a lot of values in working with a publisher. And there's a lot of wisdom there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, their editors helped in running with Thunderdog and they're helping with live like a guide dog. And so yeah. I, I think there's, there's a lot of value to it. I think it's all about a team effort collaboration and that right. makes a lot of sense always to do. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you, you had to do more of the marketing in your self publishing project than with traditional projects? Actually, I found that I had to do a lot of marketing with both. Um, yes. Publishers <laughs> don't do as many book tours no. types of things as they used yeah. to do. Right. And they like people who are willing to and capable of helping to market the books. And so we we did that and we'll continue to do that. Okay. And yeah. um, and that helps. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I think there there is a reality that authors need to recognize today that you're better off if you do help market your own material. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just rely on other people. You're your own best salesperson, <laughs> no matter what you do. And that includes book sales. That's right. Yeah. So what, okay. In terms of marketing, you know, doing your own marketing and, and put, putting yourself out there, what do you feel has been the, the most beneficial way to market your books? I think, um, well, a couple things. I think that that's why I really like working with a publisher because it's a collaborative effort. They do marketing yeah. and I enhance it. Yeah. But um, I, I think that speaking um, helps. Mm-hmm. I think there's some value to social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, Instagram and TikTok don't work well because they're visual in yeah. nature pretty much. So. Um, I use a lot of LinkedIn. I do some Facebook. Um, yeah. We did some stuff on Twitter early on, but we're mostly Facebook and mm-hmm. and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. But 
I think even more important than that is not only saying, hey, I got this great book, but I can talk to you about the lessons that we teach from it. I can talk to you about what it's all about. And what I'm saying is I can be a speaker mm-hmm. and uh, that will, will help. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's necessary to have kind of a, a well-rounded marketing effort. There isn't necessarily one solution. And again, people's gifts will sort of determine what works best for them. Right. Yeah. I just I just came back from a writer's conference, Killer Nashville. Shout out to Clay Stafford over there. But um, I did a panel and I served with some incredible people. And this panel was about public speaking specifically for authors. And it was it was apparent that the the authors there, um, as accomplished as some of them were, were just they were just incredibly afraid of public of any kinds of public speaking, and they were just hungry for advice as to how to do it, you know, how to, how to not pass out from fear. Um, some of them were so ner- they would be so nervous that even doing a podcast interview was nerve wracking for them. And so we did, we also segued into interview techniques and way to ways to, you know, come across smooth and, and all of that good stuff. But what advice do you have for authors who would like to speak and are just struggling with fear? I think that the, answer to that is the same as it would be for a lot of different things. Mm. You know, we, we all have things that we can control yeah. and we have a whole lot more things that we can't control. So what are we afraid of when we consider being a public speaker and for an author? What, what are we worried about? Are we worried about failure? Um, why? Um, we wrote a book. It's a good book. People like it. Why can't we talk about it? <laughs> the, the bottom line is that there are a lot of things that happen to us that we don't have control over, but we always have control over how we deal in our own minds and directly with things. So I talk a lot about September 11th, of course, mm-hmm. and in reality, I didn't have control over an airplane hitting that building, but mm-hmm. I do have control over how I chose to deal with it. Right. And the re- afraid to speak publicly, I really believe that's a taught fear rather than Mm. something that is so biological. And we allow ourselves to let that overwhelm us, which is, of course, what living like a guide dog is is all about, Mm -hmm. learning to control fear. The the fact of the matter is, what are you really afraid of? Are you afraid that people will laugh at you? Okay, so (laughs) they do. Then you move on to the next one. Or are you afraid that they won't listen to you? Um, How do you know? how do you know what people will hear and and not hear until you actually go face it? I remember a speech I gave in 2014 to a group in Washoe County, Nevada, and it was a speech about safety and emergency preparedness. And I thought it went pretty well. Didn't think about it much after that, other than it was great. And they gave me a nice letter of reference, which was wonderful. But yet earlier this year, someone wrote an article specifically about my talk nine years before in 2014, saying how valuable it was, how great it was. How often do you have a speaker who is so well-remembered that somebody writes an article about them and gets it published nine years later? Wow. The the reality is that that, um, you don't know what seeds you're planting when you speak or when you write a book even, but, Mm -hmm. but certainly when you go speak. And what I've learned is the best way to to deal with any fear. And I've not really been worried about speaking publicly, but 
one of the things that I've learned is you don't talk to an audience. You talk with an audience. Oh, good. You, you can learn how to um, interact with your audience when you're, when you're giving a lecture to know that they're with you. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes practice. It's just like any other muscle, right? It's all mm-hmm. about practice, but you can learn how to gauge how well they're with you and you can adjust. Mm. Um, and when you do that, you can, if you feel they're not totally with you, you've got to figure out why. And it may take mm-hmm. a number of speeches to do, but you know what? Learning to be a public speaker is no different than learning to be a writer. It's a skill. It's something you have to learn to develop. But there's nothing wrong with being out there and being a speaker because the reality is audiences are not generally going to be against you. They're not Mm -hmm. there to criticize you. They're there because they want to learn what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And if you start with that as an approach, the fear will start to go away a lot. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes you, well, I think I worked backwards because um, I I remember giving speeches or giving talks where I knew my audience was really not interested, didn't care. And that's, those were students. So, so, so what you do is you figure out, you know, so, you know, if I knew that was going on in a, in a classroom, you know, of, of mine, yeah. Uh, and and I have a secondary teaching credential, so I've I've yeah. learned about teaching. But if yeah. I knew I was going to go into a classroom that that had a whole lot of students who weren't interested, I'd walk in and I'd say, "Okay, um, how many of you are really interested in this? Don't yeah. raise your hands because I'm not going <laughs> to see your hands anyway." You know, and and then I would would ask for a voice vote. But then I would say, "What what does interest you?" And I've got to yeah. figure out how to make what I want to talk about interesting. Yes. And that's my job yes. as a lecturer, as a teacher. Yeah. I'm so glad I you can said do that. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that because children can be some, some really cynical and can, they can be a really tough audience. And I, I think, I know, not, I think, I know my students while I was a teacher, while I was a principal taught me how to really be engaging and how to yep. really know my target audience and just know, okay, you can't go on for 45 minutes if you have, if you have really young kids or, or you can't yeah. do, there's certain do's and don'ts. And and you're right. It's, it's starting with that opening for the lesson or taking something like, you know, social studies that students have typically maybe have seen as boring. And now we're doing like an all out archeological dig or we're we're doing this hands-on project where they where they are in history and they're it, it's different from what they thought. So I love that yeah. you said that that even if you have a tough audience like maybe students who really don't want to be there or, or tired, they don't want to hear what you have to say, you can you can get that audience by changing your um address and targeting them specifically. That was excellent. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And those are things you learn. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with thinking about how to learn those. Mm-hmm. That's what a good speaker should do. Mm-hmm. And that's what authors do when they're writing their books, because they want to write a book that's going to be interesting to people. They yeah. can transfer those skills to speaking. Yeah. So so in terms of the your first book, Thunderdog, just if you could just walk us through that. How so? How did how did you know to just leave and and to walk out of there? Had you practiced to walk out and find out where where the exit was and to to because most people are not at, 
If anyone had been no. been to the Empire, yeah, to been to those those buildings, they're super tall. They're, nobody thinks of just walking up and down the steps. Right, it would take you well, forever. right? But but it's not walking up and down the steps. It's getting to the steps and so on. So what do you do? Right. You look for signs. Mm-hmm. But what do you do if you can't read the signs? Because and it didn't happen that day for me. But what would you do if you couldn't read the signs? Right? Mm-hmm. Because the 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 building was full of smoke. Right, you'd be in trouble. Exactly. So one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing was learning the ins and outs, if you will, of the World Trade Center. I learned right. where things were so that I okay. could direct my guide dog. Remember what a guide dog does and doesn't do. A guide mm-hmm. dog doesn't lead a blind person. It's not the dog's job to know where to go and how to get there. That's right. my job. Yeah. I have to build that map and use it. The okay. dog's job is to make sure that we walk safely. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't magic at all on September 11th to leave the office and go to the stairwell and start down because mm-hmm. I learned where the stairwells were and used the stairs to go sometimes up or down a few floors to go to visit offices or whatever. Right. Um, whatever the case happened to be. So there was no new information there wow. in terms of getting around the World Trade Center that day that I hadn't already practiced a lot. Mm, okay. So, so how, how do you tell the dog, guard dog that you need to, that you want to leave? You specifically say that. Is there a signal? Is it no? You uh-huh. a, a guide dog, and they're not a guard dog because they don't guard; they guide. Um, uh-huh. a, the the job of a guide dog is to obey commands. So I use commands like forward, left, right, and so on. Okay. So I need to be aware of where I am and how to to go. So when I get to an intersection, um, I have to be the one to tell the dog. Um, go left if that's the way I need to go or not say anything and continue to walk across the intersection okay. of two quarters in a building or whatever the case happens to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I see what you're saying. And I'm sorry, I think I may have called your dog, the dog, a guard dog. Instead. I, it's a guide dog and people please don't go up and try to feed and pet guide dogs. Yeah. It's, um, it's not, when the, when not the harness is on, the dog is working. Yeah. Please leave the dog yeah. alone. Don't interact right. with the dog because they're right. doing a job. Yeah. And if you start to interact with that dog when they're in harness or doing their job, then you're distracting the dog. Yeah. No matter how cute it is, don't do it. Right. Because you can actually, always ask me. You can always yeah. ask me if you can pet my dog. Yeah. And if I have time, I'll take the harness off and let you pet the dog. But when the harness is on, the dog's to work. Right. And that it's it's actually a safety issue. You can put the the, the person who that guide dog is leading in harm's way. Um, but yeah. So, so you, so I, so if I hear what you, what you're saying, you already knew how to get out of that building oh, despite absolutely. The, the smoke and all that. So you just told the dog, okay, go forward, go. Okay. That's excellent. Uh, I'm just, because knowing people who, um, who had been there, um, for instance, we had, uh, we had friends who they were, they were fortunate to be below where the, where the first, mm-hmm. well, it was the first building, and they were right below where the plane hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was terrifying because there were people who were trapped, who were above sure. where the plane hit, and that was terrible. Um, they were not able, unfortunately, they weren't able to get out. And the escape route is to go to the roof, but the helicopters couldn't. They couldn't get close enough because of the the um, incredible heat. It was unsafe. Right. But I. But there were people. We we knew who they they were kind of going blind and and I, no pun in, intended 
but because of the the how fast smoke filled some of those areas yeah. and 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 how um, people were just sometimes when pe- when tragedy hits or emergencies happen like that people freeze up they get they become paralyzed with fear and they just don't go don't go anywhere but there right. were people who went down who had to go down all of those there was a lady we knew who it was our pastor's um, aunt at the time she um she she just instinctively ran out and she dropped she she ended up losing her shoes um losing her pocketbook fell out she just kept on going and it it's just the stories about that day were just incredible how people reacted so what's interesting to me is is it's you still had like this proactive approach so it still tells a lot about your personality that blind or not you were like i'm getting out of here i'm not waiting um, i'm going um how did that book end up becoming a movie? Well, actually, it hasn't become a movie. Um, we're working on it, but that actually hasn't happened yet. Okay. So how did it... So it's how, still coming. Okay. Oh, so Thunderdog, it was supposed it's to be... It's not a movie yet. It's not a movie yet. Okay. So then... Well, so how did it... We're working even, on it. Okay. Yeah. So how, how did it even get picked up to be to be used as a well, movie? Well... Um, some people um, who who heard me speak who are aware of the book and who are involved in the movie industry have um, taken on the task of finding someone who will take on the project and make it into a film. So we're, I think, fairly close to that happening, but it hasn't occurred yet. Oh, okay. Of course, now we've got the writer's strike and everything else. It slows everything down. So yeah. we'll, we'll get through it. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um Speaking of writer strike, do you do you feel that? Um, and even if we didn't have a writer strike, are you at all threatened by AI? Do you feel like it's going to take over the job of writers? No, no. I think that AI is like any other tool. We have to decide how to use it. Some people will misuse it, but I don't think that the overall intent. And the overall way that we will, as a race, determine to use it Uh is going to have it take over our jobs. We can Mm -hmm. use it to enhance what we do, Mm -hmm. but um, I think that we we all need to be aware of what it can and can't do. And some people, like I said, will misuse it. Some people misuse the Internet. Some people misuse automobiles. Some people misuse a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But. I have an inherent trust in the overall uh, world of human beings. So I don't think that we'll all allow that to happen. Yeah. There's something about us that does desire authenticity. And so yep. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I'd want <clears throat> a painting done by an a- by AI or I want to read a book by AI, um, especially because I'm a creative. I, I paint, I teach art. Um, and so that would be. But devast- AI can help you. It can help AI me. can 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 help you and enhance yeah. what you do, or or provide guidance or whatever. Yeah. But it is not going to take over what you do. Take over what? It, yeah. I've seen where it's helped my animator friends, my cart, my comic book uh, friends, where or even illustrators, where you can do those mock-ups, and then AI can replicate your characters in a way where it's painstaking to do 
to take a character and make it look the same while it's it's in different scenes. So AI really right. does help streamline that process. So yeah, you're right. And in many ways it can, it can help those of us who are creative. Um, so in, in terms of literary success, what does that look like to you to say, yes, I've made it? You know, when people say that they like Thunderdog uh, or, or anything that I write and, and they respond to me or, um, I see people saying positive things about it or just that they've read it, whether they totally agree that a blind person could do the things that I discuss. Mm-hmm. The, the very fact that it gets noticed, I think, is is wonderful. Um, I recently um, recently listened to a podcast, podcast called The Stacks. Um, and on this podcast, um, uh, an author called Andrew Leland was featured. He is um, an audio producer. He's a teacher um, and he's an author. And he wrote about blindness in his debut book. It's called The Country of the Blind. It's a memoir at the end of sight. Mm-hmm. Have, uh-huh. you, have you picked that up? Have you read that? Or do you I know haven't it? read it yet. I do have it. I, I okay. haven't read it, but I have it. Well, well it was, it was ab- absolutely fascinating because he, he actually touched on some of the things that you said as starting out with, as a person who was sighted, he found out that he was going to lose his sight when he was 10, but it would be gradual. And he kind of just lived a regular normal life and didn't pay much attention until he became middle age. And then he realized that this was really happening. He was really losing his sight and fast. And then he just talked about how he had to gradually get, get, all kinds of assistive devices. And he, he said that he began to see the world in a different way. And he began to go to like different blind conventions and how they would talk about the fact that don't look at yourself as disabled, just look at yourself as being able, but needing different things to assist you to, to live a full life. And I, I just love that he, um, he wrote about ableism and just this ongoing debate about blindness being a neutral characteristic, you know, so. Well, it's the whole idea of so-called ableism and everything else, or, you know, when you talk about people who are deaf or hearing impaired, Mm -hmm. you're liable to be shot by a person who is deaf (laughs) if you call them hearing impaired, because they (laughs) recognize that impaired is inappropriate. Yeah. Why am I being equated to how much I hear or don't hear? Mm. Um, and so the normal, the and appropriately so, I think, the terminology is deaf or hard of hearing. Yeah. But we still haven't really got there with blind people yet. It's blind or visually impaired. Well, visually right. impaired is bad on several levels. Visually, I'm not different simply because I'm blind. Impaired, right. that's also not true. But society still accepts that. And until it learns to grow, and recognize that blind or low vision is a whole lot more relevant than talking about me being impaired. Right. Then we're still we're still contributing to the poor attitudes that people have about blindness. Wow. So again, what is what does ableism really mean? Like I said, what mm-hmm. about a short person? Are they disabled and less able to do things than a person who is a lot taller, or vice versa, or whatever? We all have different gifts, and we shouldn't be judged by the gifts that we have or don't have. Mm, 
That's really good. Huh? So, so for, for you, if you could write full-time, would you, and why? Um, I think that probably not full-time because I like speaking. I like traveling and speaking. I like doing other things to help, but I like writing and I like being able to express. And so that certainly is a part of my life by any standard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then in terms of your speaking engagements, I'm just interested, like how, so, because knowing, I was just thinking about the panel that I, that I did in terms of staging, um, telling people, you know, how to, how to use the, the stage, how to use wherever you are in terms of walking around. Are there things that you have to prepare for differently that, I, that I would have to do in terms of, you know, being aware of your environment, working? To, I mean, I don't know if you pace, if you walk around, how does that, how does that work? And does your guide well, dog, is, is your guide dog with you? So the answer in one sense is I do exactly the same thing you do, right? So you look around and you look at your environment, you look at how to get up on the stage or whatever the case happens to be. And yes, I do it differently than you because I need to learn how to find the the steps to go up or whatever. I tend not to pace around much on a, on a stage. That's just me. Mm -hmm. But again, um, it's not really different that is, I still want the same information that you get. I just get it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And um, there are things that I do ask for when I speak, like I like a lavalier microphone as opposed to a handheld microphone because I do have notes that I read some, but I don't read speeches. I think that that's very much not a good thing to do. But I do have notes that I will refer to to help <laughs> remind me of things that I want to discuss. I customize every talk that I give because I want to work with the event planners to make sure that we include messaging and so on that they want. So Mm -hmm. I do make that happen. But um, preparation is preparation, and it's something that we all should do. Mm -hmm. Um, We just do it in different ways. Mm, I love that. And if someone wanted to to get in touch with you to hire you as a speaker, how would they do that? Well, I hope they will. Um, <laughs> there are two ways. You can always go visit me on my website, www.michaelhingson.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. Or they can email me at speaker at michaelhingson.com. Mm. And I mm. respond to any emails that I get. Mm-hmm. And, and again, they can go to the website. They can contact me through the website as well. Um, would love to hear from people. I'm certainly happy to explore coming to speak and hopefully inspiring and educating people a bit. Yes, I, I love that. Um, well, I can't believe that we're at the end of our time together. I have so enjoyed um, hanging out with you. And I hope that you come back, especially after you publish that next book. I would love for you to come and talk to we'll us do about it. that. Yeah, that I would, would be, love to. Sure. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, well, you did tell us how to get in touch with you if we wanted to hire you as a speaker, but are there any other social media handles that you'd like to share? We will put this in the show notes. 
also. Well, I'm findable through LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Hinkson is there. By the way, we also have a podcast called Unstoppable Mindset, where inclusion, diversity, and the unexpected meet. And uh, so people can find Unstoppable Mindset wherever podcasts are available, or they can go to my website, michaelhinkson.com slash podcast. And would love people to come and listen and um, love to hear their thoughts about it. And if you know anyone who ought to be a guest would love to explore that as well. But it's another way that we are out there and available. We did that because Accessibility asked me to do it. So having a lot of fun with it. So give us a little background on that podcast. Because mm. I love well, podcasts. Uh, yeah. And I know people who are well, listening we to this it, love We started it two years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just published um, episode 156. Wow. It's, a, it's a conversation between me and, and whoever comes on. I believe that everyone has a story to tell. And I want to talk with them about their stories, the things that they think about, the things that they want to contribute. And okay. we use that to create an hour-long conversation to talk about um, life, if you will, to inspire yeah. people to recognize that they can be more unstoppable than they think they can. So what... What kind of person is your ideal guest? Anyone with a story. With the story. Okay. And just, can you repeat the name of that podcast one more time? It's called Unstoppable Mindset. Oh, love it. Unstoppable Mindset. Guys, you got to check that out. Another podcast to binge on um, where you can listen to the interviews that Michael has with other people. I I know it's going to be amazing because you have given an amazing interview Um, And thank you so much for your time here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Okay. So this is something that I have liked to do lately. Um, Well, number one, I've noticed that in the background, we we filmed this on video so we can see people's background. So I like to know if people have fur babies. Well, obviously you have one. You have a guide dog. What's your fur baby's name or guide dog's name? His name is Alamo. He's a black lab. He's over here, probably out of camera range, but he's on the floor on his bed. Oh, nice. And then when you write, are you the kind of person that likes to listen to music or needs to be quiet? When I'm writing, I like it quiet. Okay. And then are you the kind of person that likes to have something to drink? And if so, what is it while you're writing? Um, when I'm writing, not necessarily. I drink tea in the morning, but uh, tea and water are mainly what I drink. I'll have sometimes more of an adult beverage, but um, <laughs> very rarely, you know, okay. I haven't yeah. had anything. Um, I think I had a glass of wine last Saturday. It's just yeah. nothing that I need to have. Right. Okay. And then snacks and no, no snacks? Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> I've been trying to lose weight, so I keep the snacks down to a minimum. <laughs> Okay, it's it's just fun to hear what people what what they um what their practices are. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. ri- any rituals, any writing rituals? No, just uh, before I start, I like to to sit and contemplate a little bit and uh, get yeah. rid of the noise of the day, and then yeah. I can work better. And then you work better. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I really appreciate um, you, Michael, um, and thank you, Alamo down there. He's doing your job, being quiet and well-behaved. Um, my cat is somewhere around here. His name is Tuck. Sometimes you can see him stop by. Uh, but listeners, thank you so much for checking in with us. And please don't forget to pierce through the darkness with the spoken and written word. <laughs>